This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. And uh, on this episode, got something a little bit different. We are going with Mark Farner, of course, of Grand Funk Railroad. Of Yes, I know, formerly of Grand Funk Railroad. And Niles or Nils Lofgren, who has played many, many years with Bruce Springsteen, among others. Uh, Alan, what do you think of that? We, we're getting away from the, the, the Aquanet and the hairspray, and we're going, I guess, blue jeans and blue collar, right? Kind of exciting. I don't know if I'd use the word exciting, but I, I might be tempted to go more in the direction of using a word like profound, because I think one of the themes that's slowly been developing um, between us is that we're not afraid to go back and talk to people from way back in the past, and the reason that we do that is not necessarily just because we might have had a connection in our own youth at that time. It's because the music they made is really good and it's passed the test of time. And I think there are a lot of, I mean, I hate using, you know, Generation X, Millennials, so on and so forth, you know, these convenient little tabs that they put on people. But for convenience sake, I will say, I think millennials are going back and exploring and finding music from the 60s, music from the 70s that speaks and they connect with and they're finding songs that live contemporarily. So it's cool to go and talk to these old guys. Yeah, I, I, and I'm I like an old, too. And, I, and by the way, I'm an old guy too. I had a birthday on Sunday and if anybody wants to send me 10 bucks to compensate for the misery of my age, go ahead. Yes, and, and you can do that through a donation via Mitch Minute at uh, AOL.com, a little PayPal, uh, little PayPal fund for, uh, I guess, arthritis medicine or something. Um, <laughs> by the way, folks, I am trying out a new microphone. I have decided to go wireless with a Bluetooth microphone, so I don't know if the audio is going to be as good or better, but let's give it a shot. Let's see how it plays out, but uh, we will get over to Mark Farner, Grand Funk Railroad. Uh, he is on tour, the 50th anniversary tour of Mark Farner's American Band, or the band is Mark Farner's American Band. Um, talk to me about Grand Funk, because you, of course, came over from overseas, you know, New Zealand, England. You, you had that sort of the, the, the European or the, the another vision. Were they a band that spoke to you? Because to, to me, Grand Funk is you know, Alabama, Mississippi, Southern United States. Is it a band that, that crossed borders? Um, you know, I'll be utterly honest here. Um, for me personally, when I first heard Grand Funk, American band, you know, we come to party down, um, it didn't connect with me because at that period of time, I responded more to um, a cerebral statement than that um you know but you know obviously by the time we get to the 80s everybody comes to party down but when they actually came out i was i was a little bit of a snob about them i thought they were a little bit dumb well but they survived the test of time <laughs> you know yeah they uh... have and, and and the thing i like about that is you know bobby made the comment the other day is you know there's a period of time in the 90s where no one could do any work but it's kind of interesting that, you know, as, you know, as these rockers are starting to fade away into the sunset, their music is coming back around and people are going out to see them. And, 
you know, it's uh, it's a, it's an interesting thing to think about because for me, melanch- melancholic nostalgia is not a state of mind I want to be in. So if I, w- I want to go see a band, I, wa- I want to hear all the pistons working smoothly and with force rather than, you know, one of them rattling a little bit and you walking out and going, well, that was pretty good. You know, they only tuned down a half step. You know, if, if I'm going to uh, go into the fire, I want it to be hot. No, I agree. And of course, uh, their first album was in 69, thus the 50th anniversary tour for Mark. But uh, 1970, they released the live album, Grand Funk Railroad Live Album, which is a terrific title for a live album, I have to say. Um, was that a big impact? I mean, at the time, I was only like two years old, so it didn't have an impact on me. But it is considered one of sort of the greatest American live albums by a band sort of captures the piss and vinegar and 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 the whole thing um what are your impressions of the live album or live album um you know if i'm looking for a live album i'll guarantee that probably the first stop i'll make on the shelf is delicate sound of thunder that to me is a great live album you know, when we get to our second guest, we are also going to talk about a live album. But uh, should we just get over to Mark? Because he's got 50 let's get, years of history to talk about. Yeah, let's get over to Mark and uh, and then let's move on to Niels, who I think is a wizard, a true star. Yeah, and, and off, honestly, uh, and again, I don't want to pat myself on the back, but I just think it's kind of exciting to have these two guys on the same episode because they are... I mean, they're they're, they're proven track records. Uh, Both of them have, you know, 50 years of careers each. That's a lot of career right there. So anyway, uh, without further ado, le voici. uh, Here he is, the seul et unique, the one and only, Mark Farner. We are speaking with Mark Farner. The 50th anniversary tour kicks off soon. And, of course, uh, you will be in Flint, Michigan, sort of the home of or the epicenter of the entire thing on April 19th. But, of course, the tour goes all the way through the summer. Uh, Mark, an absolute, absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Brother Mitch. I appreciate it and uh, appreciate talking to you and you taking the time. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you know what? I'm going to ask you this because I I am up here in Canada. We don't see uh, Grand Funk or Mark uh, cross the border that often. Is that something that that you think that we might see at some point getting this 50th anniversary celebration up north for, for a few dates? Absolutely. I was in Canada last year and loved the Canadian audience, they know where I'm coming from because I am who my songs say I am. And they know who's coming to town. And we rock, you know. It's a, it's a mystery to me why I'm not in Canada more. It really is. And I, you know, and a lot of other places too, but I'm, then I'm having to bend my agents here and, and get him, you know, headed in that direction. Yeah, so let, let's talk about this, because it is the 50th anniversary tour, and yeah. and to be more precise, it's it's the 50th anniversary, if you want, of the formation of Grand Funk, because you, of course, did stuff with the Bossman, the Pack, and all that stuff previously. Yeah. Um, let, let's start there. Talk to me about those early days of being in another band and being with these other groups, and then saying, okay, you know what, Don? Let's go off and do something. Let let's go be our own thing. Talk to me about about that that movement and that those days. Well, it actually occurred because of an incident we had 
we were booked by an agency out of Bay City, Michigan, Delta Promotions, and uh, they sent us out to Boston area, and we actually had a couple of cottages on Cape Cod. And when we got there, there was a, you know, the leaves were down, but there wasn't a flake of snow anywhere. I mean, it was just nice. You could go out, walk down the beach, and these guys from Michigan, you know, were all down on the, looking for seashells and starfish and all this stuff that we're picking up. And then we put it in the little uh, mechanic room underneath these cottages you know, on the beach. And uh, because we were going to take it home with us, man, we're going to show the people back in Michigan some starfish and blow their minds, you know. <laughs> well, the the then the storm hit, and it was the worst winter storm in the history of man to us because it kept us uh, immobile. We couldn't it, we it got down so bad, Mitch. We were eating oatmeal, but we had to melt the snow. We had nothing to put in it. But we were thankful that we did have that oatmeal, and we rationed it out. And, uh, the, of course, all the pipes froze, and the basement thing, the mechanic room flooded, and there's all of our starfish and shelves all frozen into the ice. <laughs> it was a mess. And the two guys that were in the band that were married, by the time we got back to Michigan, and because we're, there was no communications, no phones, there was this is long before cell phones, and there was just no communications, and and your mind you know could do anything, and they, they, their their wives threatened to divorce them, and they they had to leave the band, these two guys, and so I look at Brewer and I said, dude, we could, we need to form a tree piece, let's do a power trio, and he says, why? I said because we can't have these guys with wives in the band anymore. No more women making the decisions, you know, to take them out of the band, man. We were just getting places with these guys. And he kind of, it kind of rationalized between us that it, we, at least we could try it. So we went up to Delta Promotions when we got back, and we were going to give them a piece of our mind and, because we found out we, we were actually being paid for these gigs that we were told were uh, leader gigs, and and if we did good on this, that they we go back and make money. That's how naive we were. So, uh, as we're waiting in the outer office, there's a band in the facility, and the and you could hear the you know the bass drum and uh, the bass coming through the wall. Couldn't hear anything else. But that, and then I nudge Brewer as we're sitting in the waiting room there. I said, dude, you hearing this bass player in there? He says, yeah, man, I'm checking it out. I said, we got to see who that is. And when they took their break, it was Mel Shocker who was playing bass with Question Mark and the Mysterians at the time. And we asked him if he wanted to join the three-piece band we're going to put together. He said, you know, man, I am so ready to leave. that There's a bunch of things that had happened that really kind of soured his taste for the band. And he wanted to do something different anyways, and this was a perfect opportunity for him. So... We started the next week at the Flint Federation of Musicians on Averill Avenue in Flint, Michigan, and started putting our three-piece together. And as I come up with jams on the fly, let's do this, bam, ba -dam, ba -dam, ba -dam, you know, okay, let's do this. I, I don't know why, but uh, coming from bass guitar uh, to just stand-up lead singer in the Fabulous Pack, 
I didn't play guitar in that band. I just sang. And then going to Grand Funk right out of that. It was fast change, but it, it gave me enough time away from my acts to become very wantonous for it and the satisfaction I knew it could give me. And that's where a lot of the inspiration, those 20-year-old kids, I mean, when the band started, our moms had to sign the contract with the manager because we weren't legal in the state of Michigan. Wow, that's a, that's, that's a great story. So since we mentioned the state of Michigan, listen, when we think of you know, New York City, we think of Max's Kansas City, CBGB's and sort of that scene. And, and you think of L.A., especially in the 80s, you think Sunset Strip, hair metal, the whole that whole scene. But Detroit in the 60s, MC5, Iggy, uh, Iggy and the Stooges, uh, the fact that Kiss, even though they're not from Detroit, got accepted there. Uh, Amboy Dukes, yeah. Alice Cooper, just... I could rattle on for like the next 10 minutes of bands that just, for some reason... Detroit loved them, gave birth to them, etc. Talk to me a little bit about that scene and, and what was it about Detroit that really sort of understood, if you want, that working class you know, philosophy of bands, just sort of blue-collar bands just coming in there and just playing rock and roll? Well, at, in Flint uh, at that time, you know, the, we were playing hops, the disc jockeys would spin records and pe- people would come and dance, you know. And Because uh, we, we weren't old enough to play in the bars. You got to be 21 to play in the bars. So we were playing hops and doing those kind of gigs. And wedding reception, anything, you name it, man, we were there. We'd pass a hat if we did, weren't, you know, given some money. We'd at least get some gas money home. <laughs> and people were always willing to give us that because well, everybody always had a good time. But in those days, Mitch, you could walk into the record or uh, radio station with your record in hand. And like we did, we came back from Nashville, Tennessee with uh, the Harlem Shuffle. And I forget what was on the flip side. Doesn't matter to you, babe. Uh, And walked into Bob Dell and said, we drove all night from Nashville with this 45 and we walked into TAC, WTAC in Flint, Michigan, and said, dude, will you spin this? And he said, hey, yeah, man, give me that. And he would put it on, and, you know, you could do that. And, and just because you knew the guy, you've been playing hops for him, you know, and you have a relationship. But all that uh, seems to have changed. But the, the people of this, this great state were brought here by the auto factories, you know, uh, it should come as no uh, great surprise, but when you bring in a melding pot from the south, from the southwest, you know, from Tennessee, Kentucky, bring people up. My my mother's uh, family came from Leechville, Arkansas, to work in the auto factories, and everybody brought their axes. So you had banjos, mandolins, violins, you know, you name it. My dad blew saxophone and played guitar, and every Sunday we had music. And I'm sure a lot of other families were doing the same thing, man. That's, that's just what you did, you know, for us. And uh, it was either southern fried chicken with some hockey puck dumplings or sloppy joes, guaranteed. 
<laughs> it was one or the other. Wow. Uh, but we all had, you know, that kind of upbringing, and, and uh, the North meets the South, and black people were not uh, scorned here in the North. You know, it, not like the South, man. There was a severe prejudice. And so the, the black people's music was accepted here and because they're our neighbors. We work in a shop together, you know. This is the way, and we support each other this way. But then we started getting too strong, and that's why, you know, you, you pull the auto factories out uh, because the allegiance is no longer there to just, you know, support the country, man. Everybody's buying all this foreign stuff, and there's a few diehards in this state but I think this this state and the other states that uh, harbor these auto manufacturing plants and facilities and all of the related manufacturing in the communities around the little towns around man when that when that goes uh, uh, that you see Detroit you, that's what happened you know, you know? I've I've never heard that sort of anthropological take of how rock and roll could have developed, but it, it, it does make incredible sense that, that you're, you're right. The industry came and everybody came to get jobs. And and it's funny because my, my interview right after you is Alice Cooper, uh, the man. And I'm gonna yeah. ask I'm gonna ask him about that. I'm gonna say, hey, you know what, Mark? Uh, Mark suggested this. What do you think about it? Because it, it it sort of makes sense to me. In fact, it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, yeah, brother. It, it you know it really does. Um, it's the heart of it. It's it, really the the uh, you know there's that the catalyst is the love that we have for music, and that that crosses lines. That crosses racial lines. That crosses every line. You know, love crosses the line. But when, uh, you know, people gained control of the radio in 1995, it was deregulated, and it was no longer uh, the 777 rule. FCC prior to 95 was you could own 7 a.m., 7 FM, 7 television stations, and that kept it in the hands of American families, patriots, moms and dads, grandpas and grandmas, with a moral conscience over what our children saw and heard. But in 95, man, that disappeared, and you get this corporate structured radio, very sterile, very repetitive, very, God, put me to sleep, I can't stand it. It's horse crap. And, and you, get, you lose your touch with your people, because the radio used to broadcast what we were calling in and asking for. And, you know, like I said, go to the, the hops. You had the DJs. They were a personality. But they were some, somebody you could go and to, to one of their events and talk to them, shake their hand, and, hey, this is a real person. But now, today, it's like totally different, brother. Yeah, now it's all, it's all uh, machines. In fact, it's a lot of radio stations. Folk, folks don't know. It, it's all tapes that they run, and it's all programmed from headquarters either you know in new york or la and it's just piped in but real quick um last album came out in 2006 for the people but you do have a new video new single called can't stop and 
it's interesting for, for, for many reasons. First of all, I think, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, and don't take this to be disparaging, but as, as heritage acts or older acts, sometimes the, the, the idea of putting out an album just seems irrelevant in this marketplace. Why not just go out and play the hits? But also on this one, and please, you know, if that was insulting, please correct me, but also you, you're, you met these guys at the rock and roll fantasy camp, and it's you're working with fans on this song, Can't Stop, which, by the way, folks, go check it out on YouTube right now. It's called Can't Stop. Um, talk to me about, about putting out just a single and not a whole album and also working with fans. Yeah, you were right on, Mitch, uh, in your analogy. And I think because there, of this very thing that we're speaking about that, that happened in the shops and in Flint and in Pontiac and, and uh, you know, all the towns around us, this acceptance of one another, um, that that is what happened at that fantasy camp because these guys finally found out that I burp and fart and everything out just like they do, you know, <laughs> that I'm not yeah. just this, you know, this idol or whatever they envisioned prior and we formed a relationship, and every time I had gone back to camp, it was because these very guys, it was like four or five times I was at a camp, and I was their counselor. Um, they really liked what they were learning and the interaction that we were having, you know, just as being friends. And uh, so they called me, actually, uh, Ken Van Wagner, the guitar player, he had this idea of doing a video and he says, and dude, man, we want you to do it. We want you to be, uh, sing it. And we, we've got this idea of bringing these girls and you saying, what girls, are you kidding me? And they're walking behind you and stuff. You know, he, he explained it to me. He had this storyboard that, and I, I thought it would be a blast just to be hanging with them and playing music more with them, you know, to have the time. Especially they're paying for it and bringing me out, man. First class put me up in a you know five star place, and it was just to sign the ticket. Uh, it was a fun time. It didn't cost me anything, but it, I prospered from it. Uh, I prospered in my heart, my relationship with these guys, and as many people that is, it's like got over a half million hits on it. People like the story and uh, the idea of being able to go to this fantasy camp and actually you know be on a stage uh like you know when they videotape it and and this person the camper can take um cd or dvd home that's got uh him and daltrey on stage together at you know with their band because everybody goes up and jams with the different bands. Whoever the uh, featured artist is, there's it's made up of artists, but then, you know, you got to have your featured artist. So, and I've been the featured artist a few times. I've been camp counselor for a number of times. I did the very first one uh, for David down in uh, Miami, and it was, uh, man, that first one, I just said, yeah, this is going to, this will be good. This will be really good for the people. Yeah, it, it really is. A, it's a fun song. Now, where does that leave you into in terms of making sort of new music, Mark Farner alone, uh, with, with making an album? And, and is that something that has an interest to you? Absolutely. And okay. I'm fixing to release uh, 
DVDs from Chile with Love, Mark Farner from Chile with Love. It's a live performance we did in 2017 in Santiago at Teatro Calpalican. And part of that release will be uh, a CD with the uh, audio track from the DVD as well as five new tunes. And that's going to be like a little EP edition bonus to the set. Oh, that is going to be great. Um, let me get over real quick here. Th- through the Grand Funk discography, obviously just an incredible amount of, of great albums. I mean, you, you were platinum all the way back from uh, Grand Funk, Closer to Home, Survival, etc. But we get over to We're an American Band, and of course that has become not just an album title, not just a song title, but it, it has become almost a, a, an American philosophy, a band philosophy, a, an iconic statement of, of American rock. Um, talk to me a little bit about that album, and also producer Todd Rundgren, because... You know, Todd just has this incredible ear and, and this incredible work ethic, um, which has served him, of course, for 50 years as well. Um, yeah. Just, just talk to me about working with Todd and, and that album and, and, you know, having a song that, that is, it's not a song. I mean, it really is sort of a, a statement of American lifestyle and, Amer- you know, it's, it's Americana. Yeah, right on. Well, the formation of that song, the, the idea came from Lynn Goldsmith, who was our publicist, and she said, why don't you guys write a song about who you are? You're an American band, you know? And so Brewer comes with lyrics. Uh, a couple of days later, anyways, we, we go rehearsing at the, at the hall, and he had an idea, and I just went, okay, let's, let's work with that. And I said, in the first place, it's got to start with a cowbell. And he says, I don't have a cowbell. I said, dude, man. He says, but I'll, I'll get one. And I said, get six of them. Get six of them, and we'll pick the best one, and you could take the other five back. you know. And so they agreed that the cowbell had to be in there. And then the, the drum beat, the catchy drum beat, I had envisioned that because I I can play drums, but I can't. I don't. That's not my main axe, and I knew that he could kick it that way, even though at first he didn't think he could. But man, he pushed himself, and it came right along, and it and it rolls. It's like right off the assembly line from Flint, Michigan. <laughs> Here it comes. You know, it's got a march to it, and uh, it 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 takes you. It ascends. It it's not a uh, a song that goes back down to a plateau. It just stays up there. It, it, it's really great. And it's funny you mentioned the cowbell because Ultimate Classic Rock, the uh, the website, has has voted We're an American Band the number two cowbell song ever, right behind Honky Tonk Wom- uh, Women by, by the Stones. So <laughs> it, it really is something. Uh, but just quickly, what was it like working with, with Todd? You you hadn't worked with him up, up until then. Um what did he bring to the mix, and, and sort of how did you make that connection with him as a producer? Well, actually, Lynn Goldsmith had worked with him and had suggested that we uh, work with Todd, that we, you know, hook up. And he said, or uh, when she told him about it, he said, yeah, 
well, go out and uh, because we wanted them to come to our studio in Michigan. It was cheaper for us to have one guy come to us than all of us go to him. So uh, he came out. We had a ball. We, you know, hung out together. And this is how Locomotion actually got on the record. I had gone to lunch and was coming back to the studio, which was across the street from the 110 acres on one side. We had 80 on the other, but the studio was down in the place that we lovingly called a swamp and we had a little winding road that goes back to it and i'm i'm in the middle of the road coming back from lunch i'm feeling good i got some grub on my tummy and the sun's shining it's it's summer day and i just start saying everybody's doing a brand new dance now and you could hear the guys in the in the parking lot at the studio Doing the background, this started coming because, you know, I couldn't see them, uh, but they were just over the trees. And, and so Rundgren comes running. I, he says, what the hell is that? And I said, what is that, man? That's, that's Little Eva. That's the locomotion. He says, everybody come in right now. We got to get this right this minute. Come on. And we go in the studio, and he spun the tape, and I'm not kidding you. That's how it happened. We, you know, we just did it from memory and picked the key. And that was it. And Todd, he would hit the record button and run out and play Bang on the Ashtray or, you know, play some kind of weird and, and do all them high falsettos. That was, that was Rundgren. Yeah, he did all that stuff. <laughs> yeah, he, he was great. And by the way, just to, just to mention Lynn for a second, not only was she a manager, co-manager for, for, for Grand Funk, but an incredible photographer, right? I mean, just... Oh, my gosh, yeah. Some what of the, a talent. Absolutely. Was, so let me just quickly talk about Lynn for, for like two seconds here. Was yeah. she a photographer who became a manager? Was she a manager who became a photographer? Or was she just somebody like you, young, eager, hungry, and was going to do whatever it took to be in the business? That, you just hit the nail on the head, Mitch, because... She had the talent. No matter what she did, she was going to succeed. And I'm glad it was photography because she, her creativity, uh, it, you can see it in the work that she does. You know, it's, it's who she is. But she had an eye beyond uh, Andy Cavalieri, who was managing us at the time. But I think Andy got credit for most, and that's the way it is. In the man's world, the men will take the credit, and the, the woman that's actually come up with the idea don't get a mention. <laughs> you know? But I'm glad we're talking about Lynn, brother. God bless you. Yeah, she she really is something special. So, all right, let, let me ask you uh, sort of the more, I, I don't know if they're touchy questions, but uh, one of my personal friends is Bruce Kulik, and he is, of course, out with Grand Funk these days. How do you take that, that the band continues, uses the name, and goes out there? Is that something that you're very comfortable with and more power to them and, and so on? Or is that something that really sort of irks you and you go, man, why, why are you doing that? How do you sort of take Grand Funk? Because I saw a show uh, a couple of years ago in Ottawa, and it, it was a very, very good performance. I mean, I certainly can't complain. Um, but how does that affect you? It. For me, it is uh, the way it occurred, the, how they got the ability to, um, to take the name Grand Funk and use it. 
as they please was through deception. And Brewer came to me in my hotel room after a gig one night and after, you know, the after show party. I'd been drinking. I had a few beers. And alcohol, I don't care who you are, it it affects 100% of the people 100% of the time, and it affects our judgment. And (laughs) I was not in the place that I should have been sharp and on my toes because I thought he was my friend when he was presenting this to me, saying we had to sign the one-third ownership of the three of us into the corporation where it would have this protective umbrella. And, well, I didn't finish high school, and he had gone to law school, so I figured he was, you know, my friend, and uh, he was looking out for the uh, best interest of the band and everything. But then when I got turned on, it was uh, to the truth of it, it offended me because I'm thinking, my God, I did that in good faith. And that was that was total uh, deception because he he ordained it. He, he, you know, he planned it out ahead of time. And and when he came to my room and asked me, I I considered it and I, I, I thought on it for about a minute or, you know, and I said, you know, if it's going to help the band, look, yeah, I'll do that. And he says, okay, I'll go to my room and get the papers. I'm thinking, why the hell didn't you just bring the papers with you? But I did not know until I got the notice that I was no longer an officer in the GFR Corporation and all this horse crap. Uh, so it offends me that anybody can go out and say that they're this or they're that because it's legal for them to. It's dishonest as hell, but it's legal, dude. This is our this is our justice system. Yeah, in it- this country. It is. Can I ask you about Don, or should I move on? You can ask. Okay, so let me let me put it this way, and perhaps it's more poetic in the way I put it. But is there hate in your heart for Don Brewer, or it's or oh, have we gotten no. to the age where we can just go, eh, you know, whatever? It is. It is what no, it is. I, I have no okay. hate, brother. Okay. No, I don't have. It, the only thing I have is, man, why don't you use that thing that's sitting on top of them shoulders? And put the band back together for the people, for the fans that want to see us while we're all three sucking air. I have been trying to get them to do that for 20-some years now, Mitch, but I always get laughed at. And When I go to corporate meetings or if I attend via the conference call, I always get, you know, poo-pooed and they always arrogantly do things because they can. And, and I get it. I get it. There are people that... I don't know why, man. They're hurting so bad. They got to hurt others, thinking maybe they're going to get some balance in their life. I don't know what that right. is because that's sick. <laughs> you know, I think when somebody's there, they're just off their natural path. And so those guys, I give them the grace uh, God has given me uh, to be off the path. Maybe they're led by something else right now. I don't know what it is, but I would bury the hatchet and go on that stage with them for the sake of the fans, because, you know, when the Beatles were all still alive, I wanted to go see them so bad, dude, and I'm thinking, you guys, you idiots, man, you are missing it, <laughs> you know, because yeah. uh, I was a fan and I wanted to see them guys, man, this is, they, they were, you know, they changed the face of music, certainly uh, rock and roll, eh? Yeah, and you were more than just a fan. You were you were part of Ringo's uh, Ringo's All Stars back in ninety four, ninety five. But let 95, me, yeah, it was yeah, awesome. I can imagine. Um, 
But I'm going to finish on this uh, because we, we've talked about the 50 years. We've talked about the new video. But the one, and, and we've talked about some of the bad too. Uh, but one of the things that Grand Funk was known for uh, and that you're known for is the live show. And you look at live album. By the way, I love the title of live album. <laughs> it's the greatest title. It's the greatest, greatest title ever. Uh, the, the, the next studio album should have just been called Studio Album. But anyway, uh, you know. <laughs> But you, but you look at that and caught in the act and, and you look at the performances and you see YouTube and you hear the stories from the from 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 guys like Alice Cooper who's, who saw the band at, at Festo. What was it about the live show and the live presentation that made Grand Funk a band that gave you and Don and the rest an over 50 year career? Because, it was, you know, yes, you've got great songs, but if you didn't deliver them on the stage... We may not be talking today. People might have just gone, oh, yeah, okay, I remember them. They did that, that, that American band song year. You know, what was it about the live show that just stood you, well, stood you out of the crowd? Well, I think that the lyrics to the songs had a lot to do with our live shows, what I was saying about, you know, what I was writing music about. A lot of people weren't there as far as rock and rollers, they were great and other things. I mean, I was talking about saving the land and, you know, hey, people, wake up. Hey, you know, trying to get, uh, just provoke people to think, you know, with the lyrics to my songs. And they they drew people. Those lyrics drew people together because we all have that hope. And it's still there, even though it's buried under a barrage of uh, this, illusion that we're all a part of because really it's a it's a mirage man it's a, nothing is as it appears to be not anymore <laughs> you know uh, even with the videos mitch the before videos you, your mind told you what that song was about like the bridge over troubled water i know in new york city they pulled people and they got a hundred diversely different definitions so i can imagine for the soldiers what getting closer to my home, I'm your captain, meant to them and anybody else because there was never a video. But when the videos took over, it gave you one aspect of what it, this is what that song's about. Man, it kind of ruined our creativity. And I'll tell you what, it also ruined the fan experience. I remember in the early days of uh, MTV or Much Music up here in Canada, you'd buy an album, whether it was Kiss or, or Def Leppard or Bon Jovi or Alice Cooper, and you had all these things going on in your head about what it meant. Then you saw the video and you went, oh, it's that? Yeah, oh, dude. You. Exactly. <laughs> and when somebody goes to see a movie after they've read the book, they always say, man, that movie sucked. Because of the video they had going on, dude, our our creation, our power to do that, we need to exercise that more. <laughs> yeah, we, we absolutely do. So I'll just uh, remind the folks, uh, markfarner.com, the band is going to be touring for the, uh, for the summer, the spring and summer. Mark, an absolute, absolute pleasure. Just thank you so much. Thank you, brother Mitch Lafon. I uh, love it. I appreciate your words, appreciate your heart, and I know I can sense the love that you have for the business that we are in, and I salute you, my friend. Merci. God bless you. Rock them alive over there. Thank you, sir. And as we say in Montreal, merci beaucoup. Thank you very, very much. My pleasure. Cheers. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. 
And a very big thank you to Mark Farner. Do check out his tour and his new song and everything else. Gotta love uh, a classic. And of course, Mark gives you the classics when you see him on tour. But let's move over to Neil Lofgren. He has had a stellar, stellar career. His new album is out later this month called Blue with Lou. And of course, yes, the blue refers to Lou Reed because half the songs are written with Lou Reed, or sorry, were written with Lou Reed, the late Lou Reed, and of course he revives them or decides to put them out on this album, Blue with Lou. But uh, Sir Alan, talk to me a little bit about Niles or Nils Lofgren. He's he's just one of these guys that has been around. I mean, 18 years old or 19 years old, plays on Neil Young's After the Gold Rush, just one yeah, of the greatest well, records ever. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I, I, I was hoping to get that pitch over over, over the bass, but that's when Niels first um, came up on, on my radar um, after the Gold Rush, which is a supreme record, just an, an amazing Neil Young record. And he was, you know, as you say, 18 years old. Good God. Uh, he, I, if I recall, I think he went on and formed a band called Grin. And then the next thing that really hit my windscreen hard was in, I think it was 1975. Um, they put out a, um, the record company put out a, uh, um, a legal bootleg as a promotional item. And back in those days, I mean, I used to hunt down bootlegs all the time. I had virtually every, everything Jimi Hendrix had ever recorded. I had incredible stones bootlegs and there was a place down economy street where I used to get them. Um, and getting bootlegs was a big deal in those days. And A&M, his record company, went, well, you know, people are buying bootlegs. So let's put one out as a promo and see what happens. And it was brilliant. It was just every song knocked you out. The performances were great. And the record company then turned around and said, wow, maybe we'd better put it out for real. And they did. And if I remember correctly, they uh, did a new cover and then put it out as a, you know, a proper release. Um, I personally would have left it as a bootleg and let people just buy it as a bootleg. Um, but a great record. And he was somebody who I thought was going to have um, a really extraordinary career arc. And I got to tell you, I'm not sure I'm alone in this, but I'm one of the people who was disappointed when he went and backed Bruce Springsteen because I thought, he had a voice and a style well powerful in his own right to carve his own way through the future. And really, I kind of wished he'd never joined Springsteen because I kind of wonder what kind of records we didn't get because he did that. Um, but, you know, play with Springsteen, buy a big mansion down in Phoenix. What can you say? He got something right. Now, uh, of course, the album that you're talking about is Back It Up, the authorized bootleg. Do, do you know or, or did you get a copy of the official version when it came out? Do you know if they retouched it and, and redid parts and redid guitars? Or are, are you aware of the of the sourcing on the sort of official authorized bootleg version of Back It Up? The authorized bootleg, I think, uh, I think the only thing they changed when they actually released it as a major release was, uh, I think, and I could be wrong, was doing a standard cover for it instead of the sort of kind of 
black and white sleeve with you know monochrome artwork on it um but, but the music uh, was the same because it captured the music yeah the music was the same and the energy and the vibe of it was just fabulous it really was um you know and here's another record and another individual who definitely stands the test of time um you know and i don't want to harp on it but i you know kind of wished he hadn't gone off with that guy from new jersey well, you know, on one hand, I can see what you're saying. I can appreciate the fact that maybe he would have had his own career arc making more music, original music. But at the other hand, going off doing those the Springsteen live shows and stuff has kept him in the public eye, have kept people interested. And so we get a blue with Lou, maybe because he's still in the consciousness and he's still out there and he's still very viable. So, So maybe it's sort of... You know, a little bit of this and a little, you know, a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. You sort of have to take one to get the other in, in a sense, perhaps, perhaps. Perhaps. But I think the point is made here is um, if you can find it anywhere, go and get a copy of what was it called? Back it up. Back it um, up. Back it up, baby. Back, back it right it on in. Be, and be, be, be. Uh, it's, it's well worth having. It, it'll be a... A pleasant, unexpected surprise when you drop it in the player. Yes, and of course, uh, while you're out looking for bootlegs, uh, Kiss have a great amount of superb bootlegs that you might want to check out. Uh, uh, there's the uh, Destroys Anaheim, there's Tokyo Tapes, there's just a whole bunch of great, great Kiss stuff. Um, another band. And if, and if you can't find them online, just go up to Gene Simmons' house, ring the doorbell... He'll come out and he'll have a trolley full of them right there, and he'll sell them to you right at his front gate. He'll, Gene will never pass up a dollar. You know, I, I'm I'm actually um, surprised that as I started saying "kiss," you didn't stop me earlier. I was sort of waiting for you to to say, "Hey, stop it," but uh, I didn't. <laughs> no, I was just waiting for the ball to wobble over the plate so as I could really <laughs> smack it out into the parking lot. Ah, oh, we 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 must love Kiss. In fact. Uh, <laughs> Uh, if you listen to the last episode with Doug Aldrich Kiss and Kiss, oh yeah, there was we the the triple header of Kiss. Anyway, uh, uh, all Kiss all the time. But uh, let us get over to uh, Nils Lofgren. The uh, I really enjoyed the interview. I thought he was completely affable. Um, it, it was interesting because he had a very specific time. He only does interviews at eight o'clock in the morning because he gets up and he likes to do it with breakfast, and you know. Uh, wow! Yeah, that's and, really and he, interesting. Could, yes. could could you hear him crunching on his cereal? I think I could hear him uh, eating uh, while well, drinking his coffee. But and the other thing is, is that he lives essentially right next to you. He, he's, uh, he's down on, the road. Yeah, he's down the road. So so that was interesting, and it's it's interesting when you're doing an interview to get get everything uh, flowing uh, early in the morning. I can understand how uh, rock stars when they were going into Howard Stern, they were like, oh, it's too early in the morning. It's like. Yeah, it is too early in the morning for rock and roll, but but he was great, absolutely great. And Mark Farner, by the way, was great too. So uh, anyway, there you go, folks. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I hope you enjoyed the fact that it's not just, and I know people hate the term, but it's not just hair metal, hair metal, hair metal, hair metal. We do sort of step outside once in a while, and I think that's what makes the show interesting is that you get to hear from different people that you're not necessarily going to get uh, on some of the more commercial shows, you know, the Sirius XM shows or the other networks because they have to fit a format. And we don't. Well, let me, we, we don't have to fit a format. We follow 
our own noses and our own affections and our own passions. And let me state the freaking obvious. There was rock way before there was David Coverdale. So there are plenty of people and plenty of records to point you towards. And, you know, it's a real pleasure. You know, p- people may have been born after the, the release. And if Mitch and I can occasionally go, go back and check this one out. You might yeah. find this interesting. I mean, that's a real pleasure for us. I mean, you know, we, 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 I think we're planning a, uh, something in the future where we're going to take a look at Native Americans. And yep. one of the people we're going to go back and look at is a guy called Link Ray, who had a release in, oh, my God, I think 1958, that the likes of Pete Townsend and Iggy Pop say when they heard that track, it completely changed their lives and set them on the course for their destinies. So let's look forward to doing that one. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. And and that's the whole thing. We It is rock talk and we are talking rock. And, and of course, uh, there's no definition of rock. And so all of these guys uh, qualify. And uh, Alan, always a pleasure. But here he is, le seul et unique, the one, the only. Nils Lofgren. We are speaking with guitarist Nils Lofgren. The new album is called Blue with Lou. It features five songs co-written with Lou Reed. Uh, Nils, an absolute, absolute pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, I appreciate it, Mish. It's good to talk to you. And We had a quick drop in the audio right here, but let's get right back to Nils. So there's six songs I wrote with him, but five have never been heard. And Correct. Very exciting to test off those collaborations and share them on this record. So, in fact, let, let me start. Let, let me start there. As a uh, Washington Redskins fan, how was it for you to get in a room with a Dallas Cowboys fan, which, which of course was Lou? No, jokes aside. But how was it writing with Lou? Because he really is one of those, uh, you know, savants, one of these geniuses when it comes to songwriting. Talk to me about that collaboration and the five songs, and the time period, because it's it's around 78 or 79 that these songs date from, correct? Yeah, pretty much. Um, basically, Bob Ezrin, who was producing me at the time, uh, had worked with Lou on and done the Berlin album, and um, we had a lot of music we liked that we were doing pre-production on to get ready, make demos, get ready for an album, and... Uh, at one point, Bob said, no, so you got all these songs and the music's great. You've got titles, but the lyrics aren't as good as the others. Would you consider co-writing? Um, and I said, well, sure, depending on who it is. And he said, well, my old friend Lou Reed's across town at his studio. Maybe we'll go by and sound him out. And I thought, well, geez, that sounds an unlike, it's unlikely to happen, but it sounds like a beautiful idea. So we went and met Lou at the studio, and surprisingly, he was fairly open to the idea, and he suggested I get together with him in his apartment the following week and we talk it through and happened to be a, I believe it was Monday night football or Thursday night, whatever. I don't know if they had it back then, but it was the Cowboys Redskins playing a night game. And surprisingly, he was a Dallas Cowboy fan and an NFL fan. So it was kind of a, a great icebreaker. We had some drinks, watched the game, rooted for our teams. Being a crazy fan, I, I was a uh, uh, impressed with the fact I couldn't remember who won and didn't really care. I was so uh, fixated on the idea of, of the potential to write songs with Lou Reed. Anyway, we uh, discussed getting into a, a loft the traditional way with a piano and a couple guitars and you know working six hours a day and just seeing what came out. But um, as we talked into the night after the game, 
I said, look, writing music comes very naturally for me. I've got a lot of it. Lyrics is a bit, takes a bit more work in general. And Lou noted that he was the exact opposite. In general, he writes words all the time, feels pretty good about them, and music takes a bit more work. Um, so anyway, we decided, well, look, I've, I've got all these things written. I have titles. Some have, you know, lyrics, some lyrics that I don't like or want replaced. Some I'm lot of dying melodies. And Lou suggested, why don't you first send me um, a cassette? That's all we had back in those days of uh, what turned out to be 13 songs. And let's go from there. Let me listen to it. And, and uh, then we can decide how to proceed or if we need to get booked aloft and start working. But he was open to the idea. So I sent him this cassette. Uh, three or four weeks went by. I was busy working on the rest of the record with Bob in pre-production. And uh, he woke me up one evening at 4.30 in the morning. It wasn't an evening. But, uh, uh, you know, back the line, landline back then, there were no cell phones or Internet. So Nils, it's Lou Reed. And said, hey, Lou, what's up? And he said, look, I, I got to tell you, I love this cassette you sent me. I, I said, well, great, that's good news. And then he kind of surprised the heck out of me by saying that he'd been up for three days and nights straight working on it. And he was excited. That's why he called me in the middle of the night, because he just completed 13 sets of finished lyrics. And he'd be happy to dictate them to me. And I was kind of floored by that. And said, look, give me a minute to put on a pot of coffee, which I did, and sat there for another two hours. Of course, wide awake and excited now, while Lou dictated 13 finished songs. And it was kind of a beautiful, crazy morning. By that time, the sun was coming up, and Lou did say, I'd like, I really would like to use three of these on a record I'm working on called The Bells. And um said, that sounds great, man. Let me... uh get with Bob Ezrin and we'll, you know, move forward. Thanks so much. I was very excited. So was he. And I spent the next, you know, day or two kind of placing these 13 sets of lyrics into the music that I'd sent him. And we wound up using three songs. I've used two since. So, you know, eight of these things have seen the light of day on my damaged goods record life. Uh, we were mixing it in New York city. Uh, Branford Marsalis had played a beautiful saxophone on it at the uh, Rockville, Maryland studio. And now we're in New York mixing. I called Lou and I told him what we were doing. He said, Hey, I'd love to hear it. And he came up and sat, sat with us, listened to the final mix of life and loved it. And, uh, it was, it was kind of a proud moment. We had some cool strings on it and Bradford Marsalis, an old friend from the amnesty tour in 88. Anyway, uh, I always thought in the back of my mind, someday Lou would call and say, you know, those five or six songs we never got out. Uh, can we revisit them? But then sadly we lost Lou, which was, you know, devastating loss. And, um, ever since then in the back of my mind, I thought, man, you know, you're going to have to get those songs together to share. Cause if you don't, no one's ever going to hear them. And, you know, I, I put a lot of work into it. Lou did, and we were both happy about them. And I thought that that was one of the requirements of this record. Also, um, City Lights was a song that Lou chose to narrate. They uh, kind of nodded my, to my music and melody in, in the musical production, and he did a narration. In fact, he said, I love your chorus. I'm going to keep your chorus and write a song about Charlie Chaplin. And I was honored that he you know, wanted to use any, any of the words because I was ready to get rid of all of them. But anyway, I always thought to myself, too, someday I'd like to 
do my version of City Lights with the original melody. So that was the sixth song that wound up being half this new album. Um, and of course, I was working on this uh, lap, um, bottleneck slide lick on the last tour of the East Street Band, and I thought, man, this has got to be a song. And then one day I just started singing Blue with Lou just because it fit in the in this groove as a counterpoint melody, and I thought, well, there's there's at least a title of a song I got to write um, and uh, get on the new record too. And it turned out to be the title of the record. But a lot of a lot of things went into this record, including recording it live in the studio, at least the bass drums, my vocals, and, and guitar playing. And um, didn't use a click track. We banned the click track, and it was kind of an old school way to go about it. We learned 18 songs before we even rolled tape to record. And, uh, you know, I think that kind of, for me anyway, I'm much better playing live. And that shows in, to me in the recordings and uh, a lot of good things on the record I'm proud of. But I'm glad it's finally ready to come out. Yeah, and it's a great sounding record. So uh, let me take you up on that because I was going to ask you some other stuff. But when you say record live, is it sort of the old school, I guess, you know, Black Sabbath way, sort of four on the floor, you, you, you roll tape and everybody's in the same room? Or is there still room for technology? Was there still, you know, did you still pro tool it at the end? Did you still sort of pitch correct it? Or was it really, you know, just however many guys in a room push record, that's it? Well, it, it, it was a bit of both. I mean, the uh, bass drums, uh, my vocals, and whatever I played, I, I tracked some on piano, uh, cut him up and um, talked through the tears. I tracked on keyboards. Uh, and I actually had a second sound that I faded in live, a little string sound to open it up a bit. That was all live. But of course, always in the back of my mind, I, I wanted to overdub singers. I had um, Cindy Mizell in mind, a dear old friend uh, me and Amy became good friends with after the uh, Wrecking Ball tour. She was part of our great choir of singers that we had on, on that tour. And she came in for a few days and sang beautifully. And the other sound, I always liked the old kind of Jordan Air men's small men's choir on the old Ricky Nelson, Elvis songs, uh, and uh Jamie uh Weddle, who engineered and mixed the record, runs the music program at Phoenix College, and his counterpart with the men's choir uh brought in some singers and that was another sound I, I always wanted to get in uh to my music and this was the record to try that. I just didn't want to start layering overdubbed guitars and synthesizers and any of that. And hey, you know, I if we get a great track with like a live vocal, once we got back to it, if, you know, there was one or two syllables or words that, that felt funky, we'd just go to the take. You know, we'd play each song a few times, so we'd go to one of the other takes to kind of lift the, the word that, you know, wasn't so out of tune. So there were some little kind of not quite Pro Tools changes like that, but from my perspective, compared to the modern recording I've been doing on and off for a long time. It was a very earthy record, and, you know, we spent a lot of time rehearsing before we rolled tape to be able to accomplish the core of it with the trio being live and then uh, adding these great touches, mostly singers. Yeah, and, and you C know... Certainly, I'm sorry, certainly like uh, Rock or Not, I tracked tracked it with the the main rhythm part in a modal open d tuning on a jazz master so i did want to overdub a solo and kevin had this great bass line that was kind of a hook so i overdubbed a distorted organ to double that i mean there's some uh, you know some added overdubs on it but the core of it my my work the bass and drums 
and we banned the click track for the entire project. We never turned it on once. That was a theme of the record that we accomplished. Yeah, and seeing that's great to hear. And of course, you know, punching in or flying in something is, is perfectly fine. It's just in this modern day, you know, 2019 or 2018, when, when you might have started this album, we've gotten so everything's auto tuned, everything's pitch corrected, and, and everything is just so devoid of any humanness that it's it's, it's tragic. I mean, it really yeah, is. Yeah, and and you know, I'm I've been guilty of that in the sense. I mean, I've look, I've stacked harmonies with my own voice. They sound musical. That they got a sound to it. Uh, I've done a lot of overdubbing, which comes out musical. It doesn't always have to be homogenized. But you know, the classic cases. You listen to old um, uh, Hank Williams or Willie Nelson, Patsy Cline, and you know, you listen to modern country music now. And I mean, even though there's these great players, it's just so homogenized, and they take every like finger noise on the string out and by at the end of the day it's just it doesn't have the soul that maybe even the people that were there could offer it, it's like mixed and pro tooled out of the actual piece and maybe that's a function of well you know our first priority is to be massively successful and compete and everyone's doing it so we're gonna i don't know look i haven't had a record deal in, in a quarter century so i would just setting out to do something with friends uh, looking at my 50 years on the road and in studios, I'm much better live than I am overdubbing. Yeah. And uh, I learned a big lesson when I did Tonight's Tonight with Neil Young, David Briggs, where the whole theme of the record was nobody fixes anything. When Neil gets his vocal, you're done. So stay down in it. I don't even want you to learn the songs too well, and you're going to be singing at the same time. So I have a lot of great history and lessons with mentors like Neil and David Briggs, and of course, you know, working with people like Bruce and all these great bands and Ringo, it all rubs off on you. And uh, even in the early Grin days, you know, I'd sing uh, vocals. I wasn't that good of a singer, but if we got a live vocal, we'd keep it. So uh, that's been kind of a theme that we, me and Andy and Kevin, the bass player and drummer, uh, produced Wonderland together, and the same kind of thing. We we did the uh, original three parts live and then added touches. But this record I kept even more primitive and kept the touches to a minimum, mostly just uh, the extra singing of the men's choir and Cindy Mizell. Yeah, and that's great. And and it just makes me think there's a song by the Scorpions called They Need a Million where you hear every pick of the guitar and every finger movement. And if you were to take that out, you would lose that uniqueness to that song. So no, I, I'm glad that you kept it that way. Um let, let me just go back into the history real, real quick. Uh, around sure. that time, you were working with, of course, Lou Reed, 1979, 78-79, and you do the Nils album, which uh, was produced by Bob Rezrin. Uh, two of my friends played on it or were, were part of it. You had a song, I'll Cry Tomorrow, writ co-written by uh, Dick Wagner, the late, great Dick Wagner. Uh, yep. I, I miss him dearly. And you had Alan Schwartzberg on drums, who is a great friend because I, I sort of roll around the Kiss world and he ended up ghosting on a bunch of their albums. But talk to me about that time and getting Bob, because, you know, he, he does Welcome to My Nightmare and, and these Alice Cooper albums. And it's huge. And he at the same time, he's working on Pink Floyd, The Wall, and it's huge. And he does Kiss Destroyer and it's huge. Um, so, so you have this hot shot producer, pro probably in demand by everybody, and he goes work yeah. with you. So, so talk to me about getting Bob. Was it a personal friendship? Was it a, a just a just a musical collaboration? 
And then what did he bring to the project? Because he is one of the most revered producers. So what does he bring to a Nils album? Well, you know, initially we became good friends, and I love Bob, and I still do. I love working with him. He's a great musician. Um, but I, I, initially it was A&M Records who said, look, there's this very famous high-end producer that we're, um, we want to hire to do your next record. And um, just being the pros we are, uh, Bob and I arranged some meetings. Well, first of all, obviously A&M's job was to, to hire Bob and pay him. And that was, you know, their, their job. But, but me and Bob's job was to see if it would work. So I went up to New York city, met with Bob a couple times, played him a lot of the riffs I had songs in progress, finished songs. We did that for two or three visits and talked about recording, how it would go. Bob, you know, said, look, I, I'd like to pick the musicians. They'll be great. You'll love them. And again, I'm not very, just doing what I do is, can get a bit overwhelming in the studio. So I was grateful that someone with his track record um, was willing to take on a, a large part of it and actually be a hands-on producer. You know, some producers kind of like, well, try this. I'll be back in three hours. No, that's no good. Try this. I'll be back. He was seemed to me a guy that would be there blow by blow. And he was, so uh, he was the one who picked Alan and uh, Bob Babbitt on bass and uh, got my brother Tommy involved, which I, I wanted. And um, uh, another, it was a Stuart Day. We had another guitar player. And, and just, it was nice to have Bob really oversee the whole thing, bring in his team of engineers, Brian Christian, who we, be, we still are good friends. I don't see Bob much. I just saw him at a benefit. I think it was a Alice Cooper birthday party benefit here in town. And it was great to see him. We picked up where we left off, and, and I, we became good friends with the project. But you know, we didn't just book it and do it and hope it worked out. We spent a few visits to New York, where two, two or three-day pops, where we really get into the nitty-gritty of what this liaison was going to be. And we both realized we were both happy about it and told A&M, yeah, let's do it. And it led to a great record and one of the big surprises that I hadn't counted on was writing songs with Lou Reed. But, you know, Alan was great on drums, Bob, and having my brother there. He's, he'd been in my band, Grin, and we just had a great cast of characters, and uh, Bob and his team were there blow by blow and did a great job. They really did, and I'm going to say this uh, maybe somewhat facetiously, but correct me, but I've always said out loud on the show and stuff that Bob Ezrin makes... Bob Ezrin solo albums and gets different guys to come play on it in the sense that he'll get Kiss to do a Bob Ezrin solo album. He'll get out. Is that fair to say? I mean, is he that hands-on and that involved or am I just being silly when I say that? Well, I, I don't know if you're being silly. I didn't feel that that was the case with me. I felt like he really facilitated getting the songs I was writing and getting the best of, you know, dozens and dozens of ideas to fruition. Um, he, I, I didn't feel that way. I, I thought he had a lot of great ideas. Sometimes he'd play piano. Sometimes he'd sing with me. It wasn't a requirement. We flew in a lot of people to do other things. Sometimes, you know, I mean, if him and me and my brother Tommy could handle harmonies, we did it. Uh, we did the harmonies together on Shine Silently. You know, if we needed a simple tambourine part, Bob might play it. If we needed some great percussion, he hired a great percussionist, Jody Lynn Scott. So I didn't feel that way. I mean, obviously, 
I wasn't there, but I think it's safe to say when he did the Peter Gabriel album, that wasn't the case either. You know, when you get people that are that talented, uh, uh, he just facilitates getting them, you know, to getting the best out of them. Now, I can't speak to Kiss and some other records where maybe he, he was more hands-on. And, uh, but I think that's a, a little bit... Too much. Much of a characterization, certainly, for my, my journey with Bob. Yeah, but he always has a great cast of characters. When you look around, there's either Steve Hunter or Dick Wagner or Alan Schwartzberg. He, he gets he gets his, his guys in there, which is great. Now, Yeah, and, and look, if you're ever wishy-washy about, like, you know, getting something done or if there's a piano part and you're going to need six hours to work it out and Bob can play it in a half an hour, why wouldn't you let him play it? Just one less thing for me to do. I agree. So, so you know, I, I think it was it was a very healthy liaison from my perspective musically, and and you know, just semiotically with all the people he brought in, I got along with everybody, and we had a great time and worked hard. And you certainly can't argue with his success. You're not going to tell me that the Wall is not a successful album, or that Welcome to My Nightmare is not a successful album, or yours. Um, we we are talking about Lou, but I will talk about the other Lou that you worked with, and that, of course, being Foreigner's Lou Graham. Uh, you worked on two of his albums, mostly on Ready or Not, a little bit on A Long, Hard Look. Um, talk to me about that project, because here he is sort of breaking away from Foreigner. The band has had massive success through the late 70s, early 80s, all these songs, all the video hits, all the MTV stuff. And then he decides to strike out alone. What what was that going into that? Was it pitched to you as this is just a one-off and that's it? Was it pitched to you as this is going to be a new band and we're going to go tour and, and we're going to go, you know, uh, take over MTV? Um, talk to me a little bit about that. And, of course, uh, without forgetting Bruce Turgeon, who, you know, really is uh, Lou's right hand in, in all of these things. Right. Well, look, it was um, – Lou was – to me, one of the great rock singers ever. I mean, you got Paul Rogers, you got Lou Graham. Uh, there's a you know s- short list of names up there as, as great rock singers of all time. And I was in a rental house in L.A. where I was living uh, for a large part of my life, and um, the landline rang, and it was Lou Reed. I'm not even sure how he got the number. It was it was listed. Um, but, um, he said, Hey, no, this is Lou Reed. I'm making a solo record. Lou Reed or Lou um, Graham? Lou Graham. I'm sorry. Right. I'm sorry. Okay. My fault, man. Um, a little early. I haven't had my third cup of coffee yet. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Lou Graham. <laughs> One of the great singers of all time, of course. And I just admired his music and loved listening to him sing. So when he called me and said, I'm making a solo record, you know, that was it. I was like, oh, man, I'd love to play on your record. And we made plans to get me back to Rochester and actually, you know, play in the studio with them instead of doing the long distance tape thing, which really wasn't going on at that point. But, you know, I didn't question uh, what was going on with Foreigner, uh, what was going to be the future, uh, much like myself. I mean, right now I'm so wrapped up in a record. I can't believe I got it done. I'm proud of it. And, you know, my musical vision forward is very small it's like getting through a tour in may and doing a great job and that's it for now and keeping my family okay so i didn't know what lou's plans were in the future i didn't care i was honored he called me and happy to make plans to fly out and work with him and we've kept uh you know a great friendship we did some tv shows together went all the way to uh, switzerland and did uh 
one of those, I forget what it's called. It's a famous uh, Switzerland show. And we did some, uh, like Arsenio Hall, a couple of those things on TV. But Lou was just so sweet and kind. And what a singer, man, just to stand next to him on stage and, and in the studio and make some great records. Uh, still one of my favorite you know, things that he ever did, just between you and me. And uh, I was able to play on that. And that was just, you know, he's got so many great things. And Midnight Blue, on and on. Um, nothing but a heartache or heart, I forget the name of the song. There was one. It was just heartache. Well, there was one heartache. called just heartache. And then there's uh, ready or not and midnight blue. Th- yeah, those, those are stuff. great stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, just fabulous stuff. I know midnight blue got quite a bit of airplay, but look, he's, he's a great guy and we, we still stay in touch. Good friends, uh, him and his, his wife, Robin. And, uh, I saw him back east on one of the Bruce tours recently on the River Tour. We were up in the Northeast and came to a show and got to say hi. And I wish him all the best, man. He's one of our greats and uh, hope he keeps singing a long time for us. Yeah, he really does. And, uh, of course, his brother, uh, Ben, was on that. I just saw them in, in December and I got to hear Midnight Blue Live 2018. And you know what? It, it's just as powerful and just as believable and just as anything you want to say as it was back in the day. It really is a song that has not gotten dusty. No, man, that's a great one. I, every time it comes on, I get goosebumps. It really does. Now, uh, I know we're, we, we we had half an hour, so we're going to run out of time, but uh, being a Canadian, <laughs> je suis un Canadien up here in Montreal, uh, you did have a chance to, to work with what I will call one of our national treasures, uh, Neil Young, uh, after the gold rush uh, being the first uh, Talk to me about that collaboration. Now, how did, how did, I mean, I know he, he sort of played a lot of in, in the D.C. area and you lived there. Was it sort of just running in back and forth in these different clubs and you struck up a friendship? Talk, talk to me how you got to work with, with the, the great Neil Young. Yeah, well, speaking of Canada, you know, uh, back to my Nils album, Bob Ezrin and I uh, worked for about three months in the dead of winter at a studio Nimbus nine in, uh, in Toronto, in Toronto. Yeah. Famous Nimbus nine. It was brutal, brutal weather, but we had a great time making music. And, um, I was just in Winnipeg during the polar vortex <laughs> a month ago, February 3rd and 4th playing with Neil and crazy horse doing a couple shows in Winnipeg. And, um, you know, look, he's, he's just one of the all time greats and, um, getting to play with him and, kind of get back to Canada and do that was was quite beautiful. Of course, I'm meandering now. I forgot your original question, man. You're going to have to let me know again. Well, just um, how did you get to sort of meet uh, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. And uh, by the way, Nimbus 9 was Jack Richardson as well, right? Uh, I believe so, yeah. I don't know how much Jack was around, but I know Bob said, look, I want to work in Canada and uh, this great studio, it's uh, it's going to be cold, but I think we'll get some good work done, and that's where we kind of moved in <laughs> yeah. to record a lot of the record. Um, yeah, because you don't want to go outside. <laughs> no, no, I, I walked to the, it was close enough, I didn't mind walking, I bundled up, and, you know, walked to and from the hotel, which was kind of neat, just a tease, and not too much time outside. And we were actually mixing the record in London, because I was, I ran behind getting my parts done, and he was doing pre-production on the wall, and me and Brian Christian were working in the studio in London, and Bob would pop in after an afternoon of pre-production with Pink Floyd, and we'd work on our mixes. But Neil was playing um, the cellar door in Washington, D.C. on his first tour with Crazy Horse. Everybody knows this is Nowhere album. 
And at that point, I was 17. I'd left school. I had a band, Grin. Uh, we struck out in auditions in New York. I had original songs. We were going to L.A. in a month. And I was walking in on every musician I could, asking for advice, because I did not know what I was doing. Uh, so I walked back in the cellar door dressing room, just up a flight of stairs. There was no security. And I started, you know, explaining my plight. And uh, Crazy Horse, the band, who now dear old friends with, said, go to, go to New York and, you know, shop around there. I said, I've been to New York. We struck out there. We're going to L.A. in three weeks. And Neil was playing, just kind of practicing on his Martin. He said, do you have any songs? I said, yeah, I write the songs. He said, well, sing me one. And hand me his guitar. I sang a song. He said, that's good. Sing another. Anyway, I sang half of the first Grin record that was already written. Neil liked it. And uh, he called Elliot Roberts, his manager, who uh, I just spoke with yesterday. We, you know, these are old, dear friends now. But he said, get get uh, Nilsa Cheeseburger and a Coke, and he's going to hang out with us for a couple of days and watch our four shows to a night and that started a friendship you know it's certainly one of my most treasured and long-lasting uh david briggs his producer neil young certainly my arguably my two greatest musical mentors especially at a young age where i didn't know what i was doing and he said look when you get to la look us up and look me up and true to his word he i did and he turned us on to david briggs and they both kind of looked after us. David in particular moved me into his home. And while Grin was making our way, looking for a record deal with David, um, a year later I was 18 and they both said, we're going to do a project called after the gold rush. I want you to play piano and guitar and sing. And I was like, well, I'm not a professional piano player. And, uh, I'll never forget the two of them said, look, you've been playing classical accordion since you were five. We think you can handle a few simple parts, and thank God at that point I knew to shut up and say, "Yes, thank you, I'll be there." And uh, that's led to many, you know, musical liaisons. We made the first Crazy Horse album with Danny Witten, one of our heroes, and that we lost tragically. And that led to Tonight's a Night, kind of a wake album and a tour, and trans album and tour in the '80s, the MTV Unplugged in the '90s handful of bridge benefits and most recently uh, seven crazy horse shows this last year i've done so you know it was amazing that just walking in a scared kid in my rookie year as a professional guitar player and singer writer not knowing what i was doing led to a 50-year history with these dear friends that i'm still getting to play with yeah, it, it is great. And of course, I'll, I will quickly remind folks that uh, Blue with Lou is, of course, out in April. The solo dates start in May and they run right now uh, into the beginning of June at the uh, Kessler's Theater in Dallas on June 2nd. Uh, Nils, absolute pleasure. And look at that. We did half an hour and we did not get peppered with nothing but Bruce Springsteen questions. Isn't that wonderful? Refreshing. Yeah, and I don't mind, I don't mind those qu questions I know. as long as they're part of the big picture which you kept it as so that's great yeah and uh there you go so listen uh, at some point i would love to do a part two and, and and get into all the other stuff but uh the new record i've had a chance to hear a few tracks it, it is spectacular it it's it, i don't want to sound cliche but it's just organic it's just it it just i don't know it just sounds the way an album should sound that's you well, know thank, thanks mitch and you know i've i've learned the hard way that even though you would think with all my experience, I get better at overdubbing. I, I, I gotten more cranky with it. And I was like, man, I don't have the heart for that. I don't want to be alone with an engineer worrying about a lead vocal. Let's just take the time to rehearse. 
and learn this stuff for months. You know, I mean, obviously it's a part-time venture being a home with my wife, Amy, who's like, you know, one of my heroes and, you know, produced the thing with me and moved to band and crew on our property and figure out how it all worked. But, uh, the goal was even with the musicians, like, look, we're going to no click tracks allowed. We're going to learn 18, 20 songs before we even record and keep this as earthy as we can. And, and we accomplished that, and, and the six loose songs are so special to me. And I'm glad it, glad it feels that way to you because people don't care if you overdub or not. They just want it to feel good. And in my case, I'm much better off with the live thing, and we were able to accomplish that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I absolutely agree. It, feel, it feels great. It is, again, I'm going to sound cliche. It is a, just a fun album. It's a fun album. Thanks, man. You know, it's, it's available for pre-order at nosoftman.com yep. now. And, uh, hey, man. Uh, thanks for spreading the word. Hopefully people will check out all the dates are posted there too and come see us. Yep, absolutely. Thank you, sir. And hopefully we'll see you in Montreal or somewhere in Canada shortly as well. I hope so, Mitch. Thanks for spreading the word. It's good to talk to you. Cheers. Thank you. Merci, as we say. Bye-bye now. All right. Thanks, man. Bye-bye. Cheers. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk. On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving, at your desk, maybe at the gym, but you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com.